We're in Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, and I'll explain later how Psalm 17 connects, though if you've been reading Ruth 1, as you no doubt have been doing, I asked you to, right? So you did it, I'm sure. Um, and you, you can see some of those connections with Ruth 1 and Ruth 2. We sang a song earlier. I, I, I did not um, know this. I've heard the tune, and, and I, I've heard the song, but I, I didn't know the words. Um, but there was, a, there was a line, Treasures of Darkness Grow. That was a, I stopped and singing just to put that down. I wanted to remember that. But that, that's what we're going to see in Ruth 1. We're going to see beauty for ashes. We're going to see treasures from this darkness grow. And, and, and this is what we saw last week in five very short verses. We just looked at the first five verses of Ruth 1. We saw God's dark and frowning providence is what we call them. We, we saw them form this backdrop that's going to it's going to be there to give this contrast to this beautiful and powerful story that emerges in Ruth. And it is beautiful. If you've read through Ruth before, again, I hope you have this week, you, you, you see this beautiful story. But it's this dark, we, last week we saw dark providence after dark providence after dark providence that came into Naomi's life. And, and, and we're left longing for those times of smiling providences. We want the beauty and, but, but all we've seen so far is ashes. And so that, that's coming. And it's going to come in chapters 2 to 4. And we're going to just get a, get a glimpse of it at the end of this chapter today even. But before we move to the, the smiling providences of God, we, we need to look at how Naomi and how Ruth in particular, they respond to those dark and frowning providences because it helps us. Because, because people do respond to God's providence. You and I respond to God's working, His, His appointing all things in our lives. We have a response to that. And as I was just praying a moment ago, this doctrine of providence, it's not, it's not uh, like every doctrine. It's not detached from life. It's not just theoretical, abstract. It's, it's, it's right there in the stuff, right where we are. Where the rubber meets the road of life, where this is where this doctrine needs to show up, and I hope it does in your life and in mine today. But do you, do you, how many of you took ever took a chemistry class or a physical science class growing up? Okay, I think maybe that was required. How many of you used a Bunsen burner? All right. How many of you under the age of twenty have ever used a Bunsen burner? Okay, that's good. I wasn't sure if they still allowed those things in school. I'm not really sure how they continue to allow those things in school. There's really no way to make a Bunsen burner safe. Um, but I, I remember using a Bunsen burner in, in high school, and, um, and it ran off that gas, and it, it got so hot, that little flame got so hot that it really became invisible, and you had to really be careful that you didn't just you know, move your hand across there because you couldn't see the flame. It was so intense. But, but you, you, you put that... You, you had that little stand that went over the Bunsen burner and the little, you know, little clay triangle thing. And, and uh, see, I'm, see, I know we have chemists in our church, and so if I mess this up, I, you're gonna, they're going to correct me. My, my memories are a little fuzzy. But I, I think I remember the little clay triangle. It sat on the little circular stand. And then on top of that, you set, set a crucible, a little porcelain crucible. And you could all put things inside that crucible and get it just red hot and, and, and things would just liquefy immediately. And don't you know we put some stuff in that crucible? And so did you. So things that were not really assigned to us. But you could put, you could put a little strip of magnesium and it would just liquefy instantly. And I just cool stuff. For a pyromaniac, it was great. 
Um, well, today we're going to look at Ruth and Naomi's faith. And, and, and it was, in a sense, dropped in this crucible of testing. Hung above the, the, the dark and frowning providences of that, of that flame. This, this flame of God's dark providence. And, and so we're going to see what was in them by looking at how they respond to this providence, this testing, the crucible. And so we meet Naomi and Ruth and Orpah just briefly. We meet them, these three widows on the road from Moab to Bethlehem and Judah. And, and this, dark, this is a dark and winding road of God's providence that's brought them to this point. And we see these three... Really, two ways we'll focus on of ways of responding to that. And so one road and, and these two different ways of traveling. You have Naomi who is, who is returning and going home from a foreign land. You have, you have Ruth who is leaving home for a foreign land. You have Naomi, Naomi who is fighting bitterness. You have Ruth who is demonstrating faithfulness. And so... Before we even really get in and kind of dissecting this and looking at these these two ladies and their responses to providence, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this this past week and this this episode and just reading through it again and again. And and I think we need to resist the categories of good and bad when talking about their responses, particularly Naomi. Some commentators look at Naomi and they say it was only and always bad. She was wrong in how she's talking and how she's responding. And, and I think it's messier than that. I think they're wrong, honestly. I, don't, I, I, I do think Naomi's faith was weak. I think she was short-sighted. I think perhaps maybe she exaggerated uh, her condition. I think she had trouble seeing, seeing smiling providences that were already beginning to rise right in front of her face and she couldn't see it and she didn't see it. But I do think her faith was sincere and it was honest, and I, th- I think that will become evident as we walk through this. Uh, just think about your own life. I, I know it's nice. We categorize good, bad. You know, we want to dissect people in Scripture and in, in people around us. But you think about your life. Think of, I think about my life. It's not always just good or bad. It's, it's both. It's, we're complicated. In, in, in one moment, I'm trusting God, and in the next moment, I'm complaining bitterly. <laughs> In one matter, in one situation, I'm, I'm dependent upon the Lord and I'm content and whatever, whatever my God ordains is right. And I say that with conviction and, I, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to God. And at the very same time, but in this other matter, I'm, I'm, I'm distraught and I'm despairing and I'm frustrated with God and, and complaining to Him and full of self-pity. We're, we're, we're complicated. It's It's messy. And, and I think this is what we see with Naomi in particular, and Ruth to some extent. So, so to give broad categories as we look at this chapter, I want us to talk about the, the honesty of Naomi's faith and the determination of Ruth's faith. That's what we're going to see under these headings as we work through this chapter. So there's real faith in Naomi. This is an honest faith, a strain of faith that has beauty to it and strength to it. There are no facades, no little pithy statements, no pious platitudes. There is no shallowness, no superficiality in her faith and dependence upon the Lord. 
It's real, honest, transparent faith that comes to grips with the providence of a sovereign God. This is the kind of faith I hope that you have because of what we just sang. I did not have time to listen to all the words and to sing through all these songs in preparation for today. They were perfect. And I don't even realize, I don't know if you realize, and I have the privilege of studying this all week and spending a lot of time thinking about these things, but we, we sang this truce. These are songs I think Naomi would sing with tears streaming down her face. So, the first statement is this, is that an honest faith, it does not let go of the goodness, of, of hope in the goodness of God. An honest faith does not let go of hope in God's goodness. See this in verses 6 and 7. And we're just going to kind of read through and work through it together today. Verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Now how in the world did she hear that? He'll text, email, television, see some... No. But somehow word came from Bethlehem and Judah that... Famine was over. And, and maybe she had a friend or some family member that came and visited her. Or somebody was passing through Naomi and told her this news. Ultimately, it was God's providence that she even got word. But she, she gets word that the Lord visited His people, given them food. So she set out from there, to the, from, from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This is not just an incidental detail in the story. This is, this is a pivotal moment. This is really what chapter 1 is all about. It sets it up. How will Naomi respond to the dark and frowning providences of God? And the, and the key word here is return. Now I know it just sounds like she just went back. Well, in a sense she did. Physically, she went back home. But this is a key word in Ruth, return. We talk about physically uh, we're talking about going back to the place you left from. That's all. But, but it's used throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, this little Hebrew word shuv, if you study Hebrew. But it, it's to turn. It's to return. It, it's used, in spiritually speaking, of repentance. To, to, to turn your heart back to God. To return to the Lord. And, and Ruth 1 here, it's primarily talking about physical return. But, but it's, there's evidence here of a spiritual return as well. She, she went out from Bethlehem and Judah under God's discipline and judgment. And she comes back under His kindness. The Lord has visited His people. And so you see this change. And so she hears this report of the goodness of God, that He visited His people, that He took notice of them in this famine-stricken land, that God has given bread again to the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. And so she gets this word. And notice what happens when she hears this word, she receives this word, or what she doesn't do. She doesn't say something like, don't you dare talk to me about the Lord. He took my husband. He took my two sons. He's left me in absolute destitution. I want nothing to do with that God, with the Lord. That's not how she responds. You hear people talk like that today, don't you? It's kind of in vogue to, to vent your anger at God. And you, can, you can sell books doing that, and you can get lots of likes on social media by doing that. But this is not Naomi. She doesn't drop the rope of confidence and hope in the goodness of God. No matter how dark and painful 
her lot is. I've recently, I read an article by a guy named Marshall Shelley. He is the editor of the Leadership Journal, which is uh, published by Christianity Today. He's a, he's a theologian, a writer, a uh, uh, teacher. But, but he, has, he has gone through, this is not a recent article, but I, I, somebody turned me on to it recently. And, and he, he had gone through uh, this series of, of, of tragedies, and he's recounting these in his article, and so I just kind of read more. But he and his wife, they, ex- they experienced a very severe tragedy when they had a baby born to them who had severe physical disabilities and, 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 and was mentally handicapped. And so their firstborn daughter is in this condition. So for two years, they pour their lives into caring for this fragile little girl. And just before her second birthday, she dies. And so they're able to conceive again, and their second child doesn't live two years, lives a few seconds, and dies. And so he was back, he was a student at Bethel College, and he went back for the 20-year reunion of his class and, and had an opportunity to speak. He was one of the more visible members of that class, and so he was asked to speak, give some words of encouragement to, to everyone that was there, stand up and say something. So he, he stood up and with this solemn profundity uttered this short little sentence. He just said, again, with this, all this experience behind him, life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. I know that you can see that on bumper stickers and on magnets, and I'm not saying that doesn't mean anything to those people, but there's a weight to it when someone like this says that. This is, this is, I think this is Naomi. An honest faith that does not deny either of those realities, the, the difficulties of life or the goodness of God. And, and, and so there's something about this honest, real deep-rooted faith which doesn't give up on believing that God is good. No matter how dark and how frowning the providences are. This is what we see throughout those lament psalms, the blues songs of the Old Testament. You had these psalmists lamenting and and crying out to God and and what awful circumstances they're in. And, And yet there's this strain, even in the midst of that, that God still hears. He listens. So they're talking to Him and and, and oftentimes there is, a, there is a, 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 a verse or a phrase or a word or two about the goodness of God and the mercy of God. There are a few where there's nothing said. All the psalmist does is offer this complaint, this lament to God. But again, even in that, there's, they're, they're saying, God, you hear. You take note. You care. And, and so, so this is why we, we have to have our minds just soaked in the scriptures that speak of the goodness of God. Because I can guarantee you that when the dark and frowning providences come into your life, and they will, right around the corner, the tempter, the, the, the devil himself will be, will be there. And he's ready to whisper into your ear and to my, into my ear. You see? I told you. God is not as good as he said he is. This is the temptation that... Adam and Eve dealt with. If he was good, you would not have lost your job. If he was good, your spouse would not have abandoned you. If he was good, your child would still live. He would be at the table for Thanksgiving this year. You you, you see, I told you all along. 
God is an angry, a mean, vindictive ogre. And so, yeah, so we have to, we got to hold on the rope and see God visit His people. Naomi turns. And so we, we got to hold on to the goodness of God. I, I, I'm just going to ask you, I know, I would just ask if a, a few of you would just stand or shout loudly from where you're at. Just what are some reasons this morning that you can say, God is good because... If you, if you could just say that together, whether you're in the midst of dark and frowning providences, whether providence is smiling on your life, it does not matter. But can you just tell me a reason that God is good today? Would somebody, please, Mr. Rudy. Amen, brother. Amen. Somebody else. You got a line of them there, don't you? <laughs> Amen. Somebody else. He will. Amen. 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 He is. Yeah. He cares about those details, doesn't he? Amen. Amen. He is. He is. He does. Does. Yes. He doesn't. We could go on, couldn't we? And Dan, yes. He is coming back. Amen, brother. And, and, and when the dark and frowning providences of life come, and I know some of you that even testified right now to the goodness of God, you're in the midst of that. Um, what, do you, what do you hold on to on the darkest hour? You've got to know that in the Word of God, He says, it says He's good. Psalm 119, verse 68. Maybe this is a verse you just need to... This is it. You just, you're just feel like you're slip, your feet are slipping and you're falling and, and it just seems despair upon despair. And just hold on to this rope, brothers and sisters. Knowing that God is holding on to you. We'll get there. But, but hold on, Psalm 119, verse 68, just say, you are good and do good. Psalm 119, if you know anything about it, it's, the psalmist is in horrible affliction as he writes that psalm. But in the midst of that, he says, you are good and you do good. This is, I think this is an honest faith. It, it just clings, as desperate as it seems, to, to the hope and the goodness of God. Second, thing we see about an honest faith is it resists the strong pull of self-centeredness. It resists the strong pull of self-centeredness. Verse 7 again. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So they're on the road. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go or look, return each of you to her mother's house. So the, the initiative to go back is on Naomi. She set out. That singular pronoun there. This was no family vote. This is her decision. The daughters-in-law are simply tagging along with her. But they went out together on their way. And the impression you get is they have nothing to take. They're, they're very poor. They're destitute. There's no packing up, no special arrangements that have to be made to make this trip. They, let's go. We got, got clothes on our back. That's it. 
So go. And as they're going, Naomi turns to them, who they're going with her. Go. What? Look. Return to the land of Judah, or Moab. Go back to your mother's house. That word, that phrase, mother's house, may sound peculiar. It seemed like you'd say father's house. Some say it's because the father's dead, but I don't think that's. This is mother's chamber. This is used elsewhere in the Old Testament just to describe that place where, where marriages are arranged and consummated. That's just, it's kind of a technical marriage language. So what Naomi's saying is go, go back under the covering of your family. That place where you have the hope of marriage and, and of a husband and a family and of children. Go back. Then Naomi prays for her daughters-in-law, verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each one of you, in the house of your husband. This is an astonishing prayer here. In your Bibles, you notice the word Lord there is in all caps. That's the translator's way of just kind of giving you a little clue that, that this is God's covenantal name. This is the word we hear translate Yahweh or Jehovah. But, but he's saying, may Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, show you kindness. Hesed, another Hebrew word. You're getting a lot of it this morning. But these are key words in Ruth. This is that covenantal, loyal, unending love. That's the first First place it shows up in Ruth, but it's going to show up again multiple times. So, so Naomi's playing, praying for this covenant blessing from, from her covenant God on these two pagan background girls from Moab. This is crazy. She asked that the Lord would give them rest, this settled security. And, 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 if you, and we know from Psalms, like we read earlier, that, that rest only comes from the Lord, from Yahweh. That kind of rest. And she prays that he would give them a husband and a home. And so we see at this point in the story that the grief of these these two daughters-in-law just surges at this point as Naomi kisses them goodbye. And that's just kind of a formal severance. With a kiss like that, she's setting them free. And so this is, this is high drama. Again, I've been thinking a lot about this this week and just kind of these exchanges that we see in this chapter but you just use your sanctified imagination and picture this scene. So you know, Naomi prays this covenant blessing on these two girls that she loves dearly. And that's evident in this section. And she kisses them goodbye. And it says that they lifted up their voices and wept. So it's not a word just that they cried. They shed a tear. No, this is, this is a word for loud, bitter wailing. They, they lifted their voices, they wept, and they wailed bitterly. The years they've spent together, the sorrows they've endured together, they've formed these deep and affectionate bonds between these three widows. And, and however, what Naomi's saying is she's willing to endure the pain of severing those ties for what she sees as their good. This is their only hope, this is their only chance of a future, is you have to go back. To Moab. And in verse 10, Ruth and Orpah, they both decline. They say they won't go back. They're going to stay with Naomi. Verse 11, Naomi insists they return. But Naomi said, in a more terse way, you turn back, but, but in an affectionate way, my daughters. 
She drops the in-law part. Why will you go with me? Why? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this very night, if I should get married tonight and should bear sons, this complete impossibility, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Make a better translation. It is exceedingly more bitter for me than for you. And so she gives them these arguments why it's better. They have to. They should. They could return. They can't go with her. She has no sons to become her husband's. And she, this is a reference to leveret marriage, and this is in Deuteronomy 25 where we see this. And this is going to be, a, again, a key for the remainder of the book. And, 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 and according to this custom, the, the brother or the close relative of, of a man who dies childless can marry the widow and bear children in his name. And, and, and so this is what she's alluding to here. And she's knowing her, knowing her age, of course, Naomi can't bear more sons. And even if she could, if she could get... Go to the courthouse, find a guy on the road, go to the courthouse, get married that night, and, and, and bear sons, conceive sons that day. Are they going to wait around till they're grown? And, and is, is, that, is that what they're hoping in? This is, this is foolishness. This is a mirage. Any hope of security and of a future for you, it's just a, it's just a mirage in, in Israel. There is nothing for you there. Go back. This is ridiculous. And then she says, life is more bitter for her than for them. She, she recognizes something. And I've thought again, I've thought a lot about this this week too. Why doesn't Naomi say to Ruth and Orpah, hey, there are a lot of fine looking men, young men in Israel. Why don't you come with me? I prayed for God's hesed. I prayed for his, his covenantal blessing on you, on, on your life. And you know what? If you go back, back to Moab, you know who's there? Just nothing but a bunch of pagan boys. Why don't you come to Judah and, and you can marry some nice, upstanding Jewish young man? Why did she say that? Because she's, she's a realist. She, she understands the situation. She grasps the severity of the situation they're in. If she takes these ladies to Judah, they would be, any way you cut it, foreigners. And the, and the odds of them being able to marry someone in Judah are so slender. It's basically an impossibility. And so she insists that they stay in Moab. And she says, the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh, my covenant-keeping God has gone out against me. And that's a hand you cannot resist. I'm dangerous to stay with. We'll come back to that, but, but there's, this, there's something about this honest, deep-rooted faith that shuns self-pity and remains mindful of the needs of others around them at all times. I think we see this here. Again, there's a lot of concern here, but I think we see this in her honest faith. She saw God's hand stretched out against her. She tasted the bitter and dark and frowning providences of God, but she doesn't turn around in self-pity and use these girls to give her some sense of security. 
She, she, and she also doesn't turn around and reject them and curse them. She blesses them. So she's mindful of their physical and spiritual needs, even in the midst of her own dark and frowning providence. She's overcome by tragedy, but she will not forget her daughters. And I, and, and I, I've thought about this. How I wonder, I wonder how many times do we, under dark and frowning providences, drag others down with us? I don't. I know there. Are, you need a brother or sister to, to lean on, to fall on, and we got to carry those burdens of one another. So I'm not talking about. I'm not trying to discourage you from going to people, but we can use people to to lessen our pain. And this is not what we see with the honest faith of Naomi. This is a, this mark of honest faith was manifest supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He's hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. He. He, in the darkest and most frowning of all providences that have ever existed, he, he, he is able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, he has the needs of these rotten, depraved Roman soldiers on his heart, even as he's dying. And there, with his body sagging under its own weight, on, hanging on those nails, and, and in this, through this asphyxiation, he, he is able to say from the cross, and, and just get enough breath to say as a, to, to, to his mother and to John who's standing next to him, to say, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So he's taking care of the needs of his mom and keeping them in mind even in his dying hours. In verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where, I go, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. We'll come... We'll come back to this in just a moment. But one of the things I want you to see, there's something attractive, magnetic, in a sense, of, about Naomi's character and faith that these girls just hate the thought of leaving her. You see that? It's, it's almost bizarre. You, you don't act like this with just anybody. And it, based upon what Ruth says right there, there's... There, there's, it's clear that Naomi has had this huge impact in their lives. She has taught them of the Lord, of Yahweh, and, and, she, and her covenant-keeping God. And they, they've watched and observed her go through these dark and frowning providences and see that the, 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 this, this Yahweh is the one who caused the famine. And it's this Yahweh who's brought these dark and frowning providences in our life. And it's this Yahweh who has now visited His people. And so Naomi's helped them to see this. So there's this is magnetism. There, there's something about her faith that pulls these girls to her. It makes it difficult to leave and impossible for Ruth. Orpah leaves. And some have given her a really bad rap for this. <laughs> the, the, the Jewish rabbis, uh, historically, they, they, they say that, that Orpah went on to be the great-grandmother of Goliath. <laughs> 
I have no idea how they know that or if there's any truth to that. If you really want to shame somebody, just name a nasty grandkid after them or something like that. But, um, but Orpah does exactly what her mother-in-law told her to do. She, in, in simple and no doubt painful obedience, she returns, obeys, and goes home. But Ruth clings. She clings. And Luke, I'm going to call an audible here. If you could just skip ahead to point number four, and I'm going to come back and we'll end on number three. Uh, today, and so let's 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 look at verses fourteen to eighteen. I was going to end on this, but I want to I want to go ahead and go there. And so think if 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 Ruth had gone back to Moab as as her mother in law told her to, if she went back to Moab, she would have the hope of remarriage, of having children. Humanly speaking, if she went back to Moab, she had the familiarity of her land and her people and her culture. She would have her being the security of being under family's roof and protection. She has, if she goes back, she has hope of a future, familiar surroundings and security. Now, those are very strong pulling things on our lives, aren't they? We get that. I understand that. But if she goes to Judah, she has the prospect of absolute despair. The despair of living with two widows together. That, again, that was just the worst possible condition in this culture. No hope of remarriage virtually, of having children. She's a foreigner. No familiarity with the land, with the people, with the culture. And so she's, she has this choice before her. She's in this valley of decision. Go back, as her mother-in-law says is the sensible thing, or to, to go on, which seems to be walking into, into, right into Naomi's bitter condition. Verse 14, again, they lifted their voices, wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And this is, say something about Ruth's determined faith. First, a determined faith clings. Clings. Same word used in Genesis 2, 24, where, uh, where th- this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Just to join to, to be st- stuck to. And this seemingly small decision to cling to Naomi, uh, this little demonstration of a determined faith, it completely changed history. If it wasn't for this little small decision, we'll talk about this next week, but the, the song we sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, it would mean nothing. Just be some dusty little village. That, who cares about Bethlehem? If this, if this, is, if this decision's not made. But, so this changed the course of human history. So a determined faith it clings. Second, and, and we'll see that a, a determined faith follows no matter the cost. A determined faith follows no matter the cost. Naomi's persistent, as mother-in-law's, mothers-in-law can be. Uh, maybe. Mine is wonderful. Uh, but, but she's persistent. And she said, see, your sister-in-law, it's literally just your sister. There's no in-law here. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister but Ruth said, and this is one of the most beautiful, powerful statements in all Scripture, really. And I, I, I imagine this scene as, again, she's clinging to Naomi. And I imagine her loosening her embrace after Naomi's made this appeal. I imagine her loosening her embrace, stepping back and looking Naomi square in the eyes. And, and, and saying to her, do not urge me. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, 
my people. Your God, my God. And, your, and, and where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. My, may the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death separates from me from you. Just stop, stop trying to persuade me to leave. She uses Naomi's words against her in a sense. Naomi says, return to Moab, which is showing Moab's the, the starting point. That's home. And, and that's how Naomi saw it. But, but Ruth turns it around and says, I will not return from following you. Ruth sees Naomi as the starting point. That is her home now. She's already had this turn in her heart. So she says, where you go, I will go. Wherever you walk in this world, I'm going to be right beside you. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She's not just accompanying her for the journey and then she's going to go back to Moab. No, she, she, she says, my home is with you. I will settle permanently wherever you settle permanently. I'll put roots down there. And your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. She chooses the opposite of Orpah here. You go back to her people, her gods. Ruth says, no, your people, my people, your gods, my God. She renounces everything. This is a huge commitment. And it's not just a horizontal commitment to Naomi. It's a vertical commitment. She's, it's a commitment to her God, his worship, his ways, his people. But it's not just momentary. It's, till, it's not just till death to its part even. It's not a lifelong commitment. It's, it's where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Which is in that ancient Near Eastern culture, that's hugely important. Where you're buried, you're buried with your people, in your land. Your family, Ruth says, I will sleep with your people. I will sleep with your God in, that, in your land. And she confirms it with a solemn oath. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I've got to, I've got to accelerate. Um, I want to go back and I want to end um, with this final point and related to Naomi's honest faith. A hard, an honest faith does not shrink back from hard provenances. And this is how the, the chapter ends. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means, again, pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty, the Shaddai, El Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, my covenant-keeping God, who keeps His covenant faithfulness that He promised to a thousand generations, and the Lord has testified against me, and the Shaddai has brought this calamity upon me. Now, many have been very critical of Naomi's words here. Because we know God doesn't do mean things to us, does He? But, but she goes back and she causes this sir. And, and is this Naomi? Is this the same woman? She went out with a husband and with sons and with a measure of wealth. And, 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 and she looked one way and now she's coming back alone and destitute and she's aged. And is this her? And she responds saying something in the, in a, that we rarely say. And she acknowledges the hand of God in her life and all these things. I think of Job. 
This is, this is like Job in Job 2, 9 and 10. His wife comes to him and he's got boils all over his body. He's miserable, physically just in, in ravaged, by, his body being ravaged by, uh, in pain. And he's lost all, they've lost all their children. They've lost all their possessions. They're destitute. And, and this lovely Ephesians 5 kind of wife comes and says, why don't you just curse God and drop dead? <laughs> well, just the dark, all the dark and frowning providences. But Job says... You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Did you hear that? He said earlier, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song all the time. We sang that song last Sunday. And it's got an upbeat and it's cool and it's, it's, a, it's a good song. Do you realize what you're saying? This is what Naomi's saying. And the writer goes on in Job to say, and all this Job did not sin with his lips. Some translators, they completely botch that, that verse. And they say, in all this, Job did not blame God. Do you know what? That's exactly what he's doing. He, he, it's what he's saying. He's, he, he's not ascribing sin to God, but he's... He, he sees God's hand even in the hard things. So here's Naomi. She walks back into the land of Judah, destitute, impoverished, looking tattered and torn. And she responds with this realism and this honesty of faith and says, Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. Because the hand of Shaddai, God Almighty, has gone forth against me. And this is, this is an honest and real faith, not wiggling out from pain and suffering, but saying, look, I've received good from the hand of God. And, and I've also now received calamities from the same hand. Even things we perceive as evil. And I'm broken and I'm hurt and I'm filled with pain to such a de- degree that I can barely go on and I don't feel pleasant anymore. The circumstances of life are very bitter. And, and, and this honesty, isn't, it's not about what, how she feels, it's about who she ascribes these things to. What she ascribes to the hand of God. And, and, and again, very, that's not, there's no shallowness to that faith, no superficiality. That's the kind of faith that endures the crucible over the Bunsen burner of God's dark and frowning providences. An honest faith. Not the kind of faith that said God owes me a wonderful life to have this the best life now and I, you know, I read it in a book somewhere. That's not it. Because when the dark providences come you'll say, I got ripped off. That was a waste of money. This is not, not, not that. It's the kind of faith that says I have nothing, I am nothing, but God holds me fast. And, and, and I will desperately hold on to Him. That's an honest faith that endures. Let me pray for us now. Father, I pray that if there are those that are under dark and frowning providences today, that they will, there will be comfort in knowing that behind that dark and frowning providence, Shaddai hides a smiling face. And we get a glimpse of it at the end of this chapter. And we get, uh, we get a full view of it in, in the chapters that come. But I pray for those that are in the ash pile this morning. And it seems dark and it seems lonely and it's, it's scary. And it is. I'm not, not just seems, it is. And it's hard. 
pray that you would cheer their hearts both by the prospect of beauty that will come uh, in this life perhaps but certainly in eternity but also that they will be cheered with the thoughts that you are good and you do good they will hold on to that hope and though you slay us Lord we, we will hope in you I pray in Jesus name Amen